Well, we've been teasing this series for quite a while, and it's finally here as we're uh, looking at Jeremiah chapter 10 as our base text for this series, Uh, a series that is going to be about idolatry. That is what Jeremiah is prophesying against as he writes these words to them and describes the foolishness of their idolatry, how they are acting like the nations and is concerned about them. And uh, a great imagery there to say, you know, your idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They're worthless. They're dead. They don't do anything. They can't speak. You have to carry them around. So don't be afraid of them. Don't think they're going to do any good to you. And don't think they're going to do any bad to you. Uh, Now, at issue with with Jeremiah and what he says, and I think for us, I think the difficulty begins that I think we look around and consider idolatry is not a problem, right? I mean, who's got an idol in their closet? Nobody that I know has got their uh, image of stone, bronze, or gold, and propping it up in the corner of their house and bowing down to it at various times of the day. I have not come over to any of your houses and seen such an activity, and you certainly haven't seen it in mine. So why are we talking about idolatry? What's the big deal? That's something that happened way back there in the past. And I want us to change our thinking about what idolatry truly is, because it's a very shallow Outlook as to what idolatry truly is. We kind of think of it just in terms of of a statue somewhere that people worshipped. If you go over to Ezekiel chapter 14, you'll notice the issue uh, laid out there by Ezekiel as well. And one of the great things about looking at the prophets is how much they talk about the issue of idolatry. And we'll we'll spend some time uh, in the prophets as we go through this series over the next uh, six or seven weeks. You'll notice what Ezekiel says there. Ezekiel prophesied to the people, and he says, Then some of the leaders of Israel visited me, and while they were sitting with me, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their requests? Tell them this is what the Sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and fallen into sin, and then they will go to a prophet asking for a message. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer that their great idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture their minds and hearts of all my people who have turned from me to worship their detestable idols. What I want you to see that I think is very interesting about what God observes is that the issue is not strictly look around the house and see if you have any images that you bow down to. Okay, if you don't bow down to any images, then you don't have an idolatry problem. Do you notice what God pointed out to be the issue? There's idols in the heart. Idolatry is residing in their hearts. There are things that they are worshiping in their lives by their hearts that they have turned away from God and are caring more about these other things. In fact, notice the imagery of what God says in verse 5 when He says, I'm going to capture their heart and their mind. I have to get their heart and mind back. It's no longer focused on me. They've turned away from me with their heart. They've turned away from me with their mind. 
And so they are focused on serving these other things. And so what we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning talking about is we're going to kind of unfold what this idolatry looks like. What it looks like in our lives so that we can be better prepared to observe it when it's cropping up uh, in our lives, in our hearts, so that we can do something about it. I thought it would be foolish of us to start talking about the various idols in our life till we recognize, well, here's what idolatry looks like in our lives so that we can be aware of it. And so first thing that we have to do is just understand it's a problem of the heart. It is an issue that resides within our hearts and what an idol is and what idolatry looks like, and we're going to use a lot of definitions, but one of the things that it looks like is that it's something that captures our hearts. It's something that captures our attention. It captures our desires. It is something that becomes very important to us. It turns our love and affections and desires away from God and toward it. So it can be stated another way in trying to observe it. It is the thing that we spend the most of our passions, the most of our energy, the most of our effort and emotions, even our financial resources toward acquiring or doing That is what idolatry and how it appears in our lives is. What are we spending our efforts in our lives? What's the most important thing to us? What do we spend in our efforts? Where do we expend our emotions? What do we do for ourselves that is going to give us comfort and joy that we passionately pursue? What is it in our lives that bring those things to the surface? That is what God is pointing out here as He writes then through, through Ezekiel and telling the people, here's the problem. You've turned your heart away from me. The heart is the issue at hand. Now, I have a couple of quotes that I thought were useful quotations to kind of explain what this looks like biblically. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, An idol is anything in my life that occupies a place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is something that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time and attention and money to it effortlessly. It is something that has become so important to us. It captures our attention in such a way that we just willingly go into it without any concern or thought or resistance at all. Uh, Another good uh, quotation to try to get a feel of what the Bible means uh, by idolatry is also uh, John Piper said these words. He said, idolatry is valuing anything or any person more than the one true God. An idol is anything or any person that takes center stage in our affections. God is a jealous God. He deserves center stage in our lives. Anything that usurps that place becomes an idol, whether it be a spouse, a child, a humanitarian project, or pornography, or drugs, or power over the poor, or religion. An idol is a God substitute. Archaeology limits idols to stone statues. Biblical theology teaches idols are any things that take the place of God in our lives. When understood this way, we can realize that idolatry is not ancient history, but is alive and flourishing in America as we rush toward the 21st century. And I felt like rather than just plagiarizing him, I thought we got to say that because that's exactly right. You look around in our society 
And you recognize that idolatry is alive and well. The passions that the people pursue. What is their most important thing? The things that give them value. The things that they seek out the most. Idolatry is alive and well in our hearts as we seek out all the things of this world. And so the question that we need to consider, it is not just simply, well... Do I worship something? I think it is, I think, a reasonable thought within us that God has created humans for worship. It is really the greater question of, well, what are we worshiping? It is not a matter of if we worship, but what or who do we worship? I believe God has created within us this conscience and a void of sorts to cause us to seek after Him, to uh, cause us to look for something more. I think that's why the number one question that everybody always has, if you ask them, what is the great question that people want to know is, what's the meaning of life? It seems like that's been that question for thousands and thousands of years. It seems to be innately built within us that we want to know something. We are seeking after something bigger than ourselves. Why are we here? Is there a God? And so the point is to make is it's not a question of do we worship something? It's the question of what? What is it that we are putting our passion into? What is it that we find so important? What is it that makes things in life seem so critical to us? What are we worshiping? To frame it another way, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the most famous idol incident I think that we we ever read in Scriptures. That's over in Exodus chapter 32. And you turn over there. And you'll notice the situation that occurs. You have over in Exodus 32... Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. He's been up there for quite a while, according to the people. He's been up there and he's been talking with God. He is receiving the commands of God. Remember, God has been speaking the commandments and the people have said, uh, tell God not to do that. You go up there and talk to God and you come back and tell us what he said. And so that's what Moses is doing. Moses is up on the mountain. He's on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. He's hearing the laws of God. (coughs) Meanwhile, the people are completely panicking down at the base of the mountain. You'll see it there in verse 1 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. You have this great panic. Everybody's like, Moses has been gone a real long time. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, get up and do something because we don't have a leader anymore, so we need somebody to follow. And so here's Aaron's resolve, verse 2. So Aaron says to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. This is interesting on a number of levels. We might come back here at some point. What happens here is a fascinating scene. I think one of the things that is absolutely fascinating about what takes place in this idolatry scene 
is have you ever asked yourself the question, where did they get all the gold to do this? Where did they get all of this gold to be able to fashion this golden calf? It doesn't come across from the imagery that they made this little half-pint little calf here that they all went, oh, well, there's our gods, that little itty-bitty thing. Uh, It gives the implication that this is a very large idol that they have created. Where did they get all that? Well, if you remember what God promised back in Exodus, earlier back in Exodus chapter 3, He promised to Moses and the people, and it comes to pass in Exodus chapter 12, that God said, when I'm done with Egypt, you're going to plunder the people. And in fact, the record in Exodus chapter 12 is that the people are giving them their gold and giving them their silver and giving them their clothes and saying, get out of here after the death of the firstborn, that final plague, whatever it took to get the people out. That's they just said, just take everything and get out of here. And so everything that they're holding in their hands, remember they're slaves in Egypt, the things that they are bringing out of slavery have been given to them by God. And now they turn and take these things and create an image and say, well, there's our God. Notice that they don't think that they're worshiping a calf. They don't think they're worshiping Baal. They don't think they're worshiping some false god. Did you catch the words of Aaron there in verse 5? Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? The Lord. We think we're going to worship God. By our stuff. We take all the stuff that God's given us and we're going to use it to make this idol. And we're going to worship God. Yay, now we can see our God and we're going to follow this calf. Even though that doesn't make any sense because they'd have to stick it on a wagon and drag it wherever they were going to go. It's a curious, curious scene that we need someone to go before us. So here's this thing that you'll have to drag with you on this journey. I think that's an important third definition of what idolatry looks like. Idolatry is taking the good things given to us by God and making them the ultimate thing. Thinking that they can give us significance, security, safety, satisfaction, fulfillment. Taking the things that God has blessed us with, physical things, physical enjoyments, material blessings... And now making them important. Making them our gods. That we will find now we will be at ease. You see that with the people? We need something to calm us down. We don't have a Moses anymore. So what are we going to do? We need something that we can see because we don't know what happened to Moses. We can't see him anymore. Give us something that we can see that we can follow. So we take the good things of God. And we put all of our security in those things. We put our fulfillment in those things. We put our safety in these things, in these physical things of the world. I thought uh, John Piper again said it very well, speaking about our society today. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, it's his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. You know, I think we've observed, we talk about it when we studied Revelation, we've studied many passages where we read about the persecution of the people of God. And we read in Revelation that this was a tactic of Satan. That he uses the persecution, he uses this time of distress and suffering to try to cause people to fall away from God. And I strongly think that Satan has changed tactics. 
rather than causing us to suffer severely to try to get us to fall away from God. He wants us to enjoy prosperity beyond measure so that we'll fall away from God. That we will take these things that God has given us, God has blessed us with, God has given to us for our use and enjoyment and make them the most important thing to turn and use them in such a way that now we're no longer worshiping God, we're no longer glorifying God, we no longer give Him the praise, we no longer find our security in Him, we no longer find our value in Him. It's in these other things that we have. That's our security. That's our joy. That's our passion. And God becomes secondary. God just is kind of there on the sideline where we actively pursue the things of this world. Idolatry is alive and well. Idolatry is an enormous problem. And I would like for you to consider what God said about that. All throughout the scriptures, we could turn to a number of places that repeatedly show, here is God saying, I am just against idolatry in every way. I'll give you just one. Ezekiel 14, where we were earlier. Notice what he says there. He says, uh, when any of the Israelites or any foreigners residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet and inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I find those two verses in Ezekiel 14 such a reality today. When my people set up idols in their hearts, their passions are taken away from serving God, from actively pursuing Him, to seek Him with all of their heart, to love the Lord their God with all their heart. And they start seeking the things of this world and the things of this life become the most important thing. And we find our security and joy in the things of this world. And then notice what he says. And then they come to me and start asking for a message. You see, God's just angry. How dare you seek after the things of this world, put your identity in this life, say your wealth is the most important thing, and then turn to me in prayer for guidance. Who do you think you are? What are you doing? You're showing that your life is bound in the things of this world. And your guidance comes from it. And your joy comes from it. So why don't you talk to your things and find out what's going to happen next? Go talk to your car and see if it will tell you how to live this life. Go to bow down to your house. Go bow down to your wealth. That's what God is saying here. You've turned away from me. And He says, you want an answer from me? Let me give you an answer. Verse 8, I will set my face against them. Not good when God says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You want to seek after the things of the world? And God says that my face is against you. Because you're not seeking after me. Why should you come to me for a message? Why would you come for me for guidance? If I'm not your number one, then go ask what is number one and let it lead you in life. Let it tell you what to do. Further, he says, and I will make them an example and a byword. 
You know in school it was never good when you were made an example of, right? That, that never went well. It never went when, when the teacher said, I'm going to make an example out of this kid. When God says, I'm going to make an example out of you, I mean, everybody should have went, look out. This is not going to go well. And I'm going to make you a byword. You're going to be a joke to people because I'm not going to be with you anymore. You're going to run around claiming to be the people of God, but your life will look reckless in a disaster. People are going to think of you as a byword. I'm going to make an example out of you. I'm going to turn my face against you. And then you'll know that I'm the Lord. Consider those first two commands that God gave as He initiates the covenant with the people of Israel. You shall have no other gods. There's not to be anything else. There's no second place with God. God is a jealous God. And if he will not be our number one, then he wants no place and has nothing to do with us. He says, I don't want any part of it. No other gods. And then the second thing God told Moses and the people, and don't have idols. Have no images. Isn't that interesting? That's how God had to start. I think because he knows that our hearts are idol factories. That we start placing emphasis on things that we shouldn't put emphasis on. That we start seeking after the things of the world and material possessions and the things that give us joy and comfort and ease. And we make those the most important things. And our comfort is one of the greatest gods that we serve today. If it doesn't make you happy, you shouldn't do it. You only got to do what's good for you. Do what feels right. Make yourself pleased and happy and good. Wealth is another big one that we'll certainly talk about. Got to have stuff. Got to have things. You know, got to take care of my family. Got to have these things. You know, got to have my stuff. And we're no longer passionately pursuing God. We're no longer putting our efforts and time and energy into what God wants us to do in His kingdom. Our efforts and passion and time are strictly spent in the affairs of this world. Trying to find joy trying to give ourselves satisfaction, trying to give our lives some kind of meaning and value, trying to accumulate more wealth for ourselves. And so what I want to do is I want to perform, if you will, an idol check of sorts. I want to spend a moment and just talk about some of the things that I think are some test questions to try to help us consider where there might be idols in our life. What are some of the things that might be problem areas that we can expose them, get them out in the open, and identify them so as we go through this series on idolatry, we can be ready to tackle them and start thinking about how we can remove these things from our lives. So first question, what if I failed at or lost it would cause me to feel that I didn't want to live? That's a very big deal today in our world. That, that's been interesting with the financial crisis that's happened over the past few years. You've seen mass depression, people taking their lives, a whole lot of awful things have gone on. And, and Christians can fall into the same trap when something goes wrong in life. Something doesn't go the way according to plan. The loss of some kind of wealth, loss of some kind of entity or person... Uh, failing at something in life that causes the spiraling of their lives completely out of control. There's something in our lives that we would say, you know, if I lost that, if that didn't go right, if I wasn't successful at this, if this didn't turn out well, I don't know what I'd do with myself. That identifies that there's idolatry. 
Second question. What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or get difficult? Where do you find your comfort in life? This is a very big problem in our society today as people turn to sexual relations for their comfort. People turn to drugs, legal or illegal. They turn to alcohol. They turn to all kinds of various things to try to find comfort, to soothe the pain when things go wrong. And we see addictions and problems and vices that people plunge themselves into, all trying to deal with their problems, trying to deal with the issues that are in their heart. Where do you turn when you need comfort? Where do you go when things go wrong? When times are difficult, what is the satisfaction for you? What, what brings you out of that problem? Is it to God or is it something else? Number three, what do you worry about? What do you get really bent out of shape about? What do you worry about? What's, what rests on your mind that you are so concerned about? We just recently in our Luke study talked about there, Jesus talking about They only need to be anxious about the kingdom of God. That's where our focus is supposed to lie, not in the things of this world. And so often we get so twisted and torn up about so much that is happening to us in our world and the things that we lose or what's happening financially, all the various issues emotionally that we can have. What do you worry about? Uh, Number four, and this has a a few questions uh, tied to it. What preoccupies my time? Or to state it another way, what do you do when you have downtime? That also can identify what's most important to you. When things are all said and done, if everything of hectic day is out of the way, what do you do? Or what's on your mind a lot as you go through your day? As you're going through the rigmarole and you're at work and you take care of this and that and you're constantly on the run and your schedules are busy... What do you spend most of your time preoccupied with? Things of the world? Things of God? Things of sin? Things of selfish comfort and desire? Or the ways of God? What do you do when you have downtime? Is your first desire to prayer? Studies God's word? Doing Christian activities with other people, other Christians? Or is it selfish? Is it for our own comforts and desires? Number five, this also has a few questions to try to get at it. Uh, what, what gives me self-worth? I, this one really concerns me today as I talk to people and rub shoulders with, a lot, with those in the world. What do you want to be known for? What makes you feel good about yourself? I have talked about it many times. I am so troubled about how apparently in our world we find our value in our jobs. That's our self-worth. If we are successful at our job, then you've made it in life. That's, that's who you are. Uh, that's all it is, is to, to be the very best at your job. And that, that's what gives you your value and your confidence and your joy. And so what do you want to be known for? What do you want on your tombstone, as the saying used to be? You know, what, what would be the, the important thing to you? Follower of the Lord? Or is there something else that you're aggressively pursuing? Is there something else that's so important to you? Is there something else that you need to be a success at? Is there something else that gives you self-worth, that is propping you up to make you feel good about yourself? Number six, <clears throat> what do I expect out of life? 
Right now, God is being used for everything you could possibly want. You can have it all if you just come to the Lord. You can have all your riches, all your wealth. You'll be happy. You know, you'll have your cake and eat it too. You'll never have a problem. Everything will be just great. Is that your expectation of life? Is that what you're looking out at life toward? What, what am I going to get out of this world? What is your end point? What are you looking at as, as the end and the goal of life? It's the function of life and the purpose of life of being pleasing to God and being a faithful servant that on that final day you'll be there before Him? Or is there something else that's the end point in life? You say, I'm trying to get to this. This is what would make me happy. I'm trying to get to my retirement. I'm trying to get to where I don't have debt. I'm trying to get to where, you know, whatever it is. I ought to be in charge of the business. I want to be self-employed. This, that's my big goal. To put it another way, what would really make me happy? If you could write it down and sum it up, what would make you happy right now? Don't say that the sermon would be over, right? <laughs> Get this thing done. <laughs> what would make you happy? You could just quantify that. If I just had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. What is that? What is that thing that would make you happy? That you would say, now I'm at peace. Now I have joy. Now I'm at rest. That's our idol as well. Finally, to find your idol, follow the money. Alright? To find your idol, follow the money. What do you spend your money on? Your money often reveals what's most important to you. Where the money goes often reveals where your passions lie. Where the money goes often reveals exactly what is most important and what you're actively pursuing. You might think of some other good questions for yourself. That's just seven. I came across a fellow who, uh, who uh, wrote those things down. He wrote a big, long list of them. I thought these were the important ones. But these are important questions for us to consider. Well, where are we in that? I want us to consider that idolatry can remain so hidden in our lives and we not recognize that it's there because our passions and our pursuits and our desires all get in the way and we don't begin to realize that they've become the most important thing. We don't begin to realize that we've taken our passion away from God and are now pursuing joy in the things of this world and don't recognize that we've turned away from our God. In conclusion, I just want to consider then some quick ways we can smash these idols. And the lessons that we're going to have laid out ahead, we're going to talk in more detail about specific idols and what we can do to get them out of our lives. But you'll probably recognize that there's always two tactics to a fight of what you're going to do. And the scriptures give us both tactics, and I want us to to consider them. One of the things that's most obvious, of course, is when we recognize these idols, we need to get away from them. We shouldn't allow ourselves into the temptation of those things. We understand where our weaknesses are, where the temptations are, where the various things that cause our hearts to follow after those things then we need to avoid them at all costs. We need to be like Joseph, run far away from the things of the world that entangle us so easily. And I think that's really important. Uh, Right along with that, though, is that that alone often leads to failure, and we need to replace it with something more desirable. And if you have children, you understand this. Uh, When your child gets their hand on something that they're not supposed to have, you have one of two options. You can either rip it right out of the child's hand, and I've done that plenty of times. You say, you can't have that. Rip it right out of there. But you know what the child does after that, right? They try, usually with all their might, to get it back. <laughs> usually just try to go right back and get it, and then you've got to discipline them, and you go through a whole rigmarole because they still want that. 
And, and that's often the problem with trying to rip out sin and idolatry in our hearts. Is that, okay, we're going to stop doing it. Starting today, you're right, Brent. Starting today, we're going to stop. We're not going to do that anymore. Okay, good. But your passion for it is still there. It's still yearning there. The temptation continues to return. And we continue to fail because we haven't replaced that temptation or replaced that weakness and that desire. The easier thing to do with a child is to give them something that they can have that they would desire so that you can take the other thing out. And that's what God calls us to do. That's what God was saying there in Ezekiel 14 when we started this lesson. What did God say that he was going to do? It's going to recapture their hearts and their minds. That's what it is about. That's what we need to be pursuing. Fixing the idolatry problem in our hearts is about turning our passions away from the things of the world. But not just saying, okay, I'm not going to have passion for that anymore, but to develop a passion for the things of God. To begin to develop that love for Him. To see what He's done for you and then that become the passion. So it's not a problem of white knuckling it through an issue anymore, but it's that I want to do what God says. I want to be pleasing to Him. And so that love and desire overrides the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions in life. I'll leave you with C.S. Lewis as he said it this way, if you want to get warm, you move near the fire. If you want joy, peace, eternal life, you must get closer to what has them. And that's the answer. If we're going to deal with sin, if we're going to deal with idolatry, if we're going to deal with the problems of the heart, then we must move closer to our Lord and step away from the things of this world. We need to move closer in our passions, move closer in our pursuits. My prayer for you this week is you'll take the opportunity with those questions and really analyze what is it that I may be worshiping. Does God have the preeminence? Is He the number one in all of my pursuits and desires and my comforts and my satisfaction and my security? Or is He where I have put I put all my trust? Is He it? Or is there something else that makes you happy? Is there somewhere else that gives you satisfaction? Is there some other aspect that you find your security and fulfillment? Identify those things. Identify those areas. And I hope that I'll be able to help all of us work on how we can get out of that problem in, in, in future lessons. But move away from those things and move to the things of God. You pull your song books out and we're singing an invitation song to you and we are inviting you to make the decision to turn away from the foolish idols of this world, to turn away from the scarecrows that are in our fields that we so often just blindly follow that do not give us life, they do not give us hope, they do not give us joy and satisfaction. There's a temporary measure of happiness for the moment that then leaves us with the void that we were trying to seek in the first place. And here is God calling out to His people with open hands, if you would just come to Me, I would satisfy you. If you would just come to Me with all of your heart, I can give you what you're looking for. Worship the Lord. Worship and seek Him. Find your joy in Him. Serve Him and follow Him. And God's made a promise that He's not going to let you down with that. You're going to find great joy. You'll have, as Proverbs describes, you'll have a good life now. It won't be what you often suppose it'll be. But it'll be the life that God has desired for you. And more importantly, you'll have the hope of eternal life. You'll have the promise of what true life is all about. 
in being with God and not being with these corruptible things that give temporary pleasure and then pass away. Come to the Lord. Seek Him and serve Him with all of your heart. Turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. The song is for you to do that once you come now while we stand and sing this song.